lovely school for your music masters. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Wonderful school. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I, uh, I quit music shortly thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways with great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills. You're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Well, Stephen, I'm so glad you were able to drop in today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I've, I've heard about you, and then I was able to take a class with you fairly recently, just one, but I do want to take more. And so I looked I'd like to understand a little bit how you got into improv and what have been some of your highest moments in improv, if I can call it that. Like, you know, sometimes, like for me, one of my first classes was an aha moment. It was like, wow, this is not only fun, but I think I can do it. So your improv origin story, if you don't mind. Gosh, okay. Um, so I used to be a classical musician. I was a clarinetist. Uh, and for my master's degree, I wrote my thesis on how people learn to improvise music. Uh, and for that, I did a lot of research about uh, improvised theater and improvised dance as well, um, as well as a bit of uh, queer theory and other sort of things about social constructs and how we all learn to do things as a group, basically. Uh, and in reading all of this stuff about theater improv, I thought, that sounds fun. But I also thought, that sounds like it would be good for me. <laughs> um, because I wasn't uh, always great on stage at engaging with the audience. I would just sort of go and play, as most classical musicians do. Uh, so I signed up for some classes with Improv Montreal, or Impro Montreal, excuse me in 2000 and probably six or seven uh, with Vinnie Francois and co. Uh, and I was awful at it for years, um, but coming from a classical music background, I very much had the ethic of, oh, I'll just keep practicing and it'll get better. <laughs> and it eventually did, um, but I think for me, the aha moment was just enjoying the process of being bad at it and getting very gradually better. I love that. That's lovely. And, you know, they say that Bach and Beethoven actually improvised quite a bit. Have you heard of that, that they, they had the regular music, but when they did concerts, they often were improvising. I don't know if there's veracity in that or not. But what were you doing in Montreal? Uh, I was in Montreal at McGill, uh, so I did my master's degree there. Um, Very impressive, lovely school for your music masters, is that right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Wonderful school, yeah, congratulations, yeah. Thank you. 
I, uh, I quit music shortly thereafter. <laughs> uh, they educated you too well. Um, I, a little bit, actually. I love a challenge, and part of why I switched from music to improv is uh, how far I had to go and how far I still have to go in learning it. Uh, I picked music as a career initially just because I was good at it rather than because I was deeply in love. And definitely something I've learned is that I would rather be a mediocre actor than a really good musician just because <laughs> I like it more. It is fun. Yeah. It is exciting. And, you, and you've grown. And we do grow with talent, I think, because of the skill skill. I love doing short form. That's one of my favorite things to do because I just think it's so much fun. And um, so are you living in Montreal now or are you in UK? Uh, I'm in London, UK. I've been here for about a decade. Oh, that's a beautiful city. Do you love it? I do love it. Uh, and it's got such a great art city. It's very much uh, the big appeal for me. There's so much going on. There is so much. I've been there several times on my own and met lovely people and just had a great time. And I love the architecture and the arts. Um, I think I, I went there before I started studying improv. And now I'm sorry I hadn't been in improv then so to take advantage of these wonderful people there. So um, what kind of, can I ask you a personal question? Um, what kind of home did you grow up in? Where did you grow up? Gosh, um, I grew up in Vancouver, BC, in Canada. Wow. Um, I guess in an unremarkable home, uh, middle class, I'm an only child. Nobody in my family, in my immediate family, was sort of creative. So the fact that I ended up in music and then theater, it's a little bit odd because uh, I didn't really have that influence. But here I am. Yeah, lovely. And it probably is nice being an only child because you get attention and uh, a lot of encouragement, I hope, so to make you as happy and lovely as you are today. So one of the things I think you're kind of known for is working with gender. And uh, in fact, uh, you have a book, Improvising Gender, right? Uh, and tell me a little bit about what that's about. Sure. Uh, so improvising gender is about uh, using gender as a set of tools as actors uh, to create really rounded characters. Um, so, for example, separating the, the expressive part of gesture, how you speak and how you move uh, from the sort of behavioral aspects of gender and kind of mixing and matching to make really rich and well-rounded characters. Um, and there's also a bit in there about uh, trans and non-binary characters uh, and including trans and non-binary actors in a theater company. Um, I'm transgender myself. I was born female. And I think having started improv as a female improviser and now being uh, a male improviser, I've certainly noticed a lot of difference in uh, how I'm treated and also in how I act. And I've kind of, I've leveraged that along with a little bit of juicy queer theory and improv pedagogy, just to, to provide people with a set of tools for character work, really. 
Um, so tell me about, you mentioned that you were treated differently. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, what you meant by that? Um, sure. I, I would say it's broadly sort of respect and space. People assume that I'm competent without me having to prove it. Um, and I think yeah. over the years, having people treat you that way starts to affect how you treat yourself. Um, so very much now, if I'm in a room full of people, unless there is an older and hairier man there, people assume that I'm in charge of it. Um, and if that had just been my life the whole time, I could so easily just think, well, I'm a natural leader and everyone can see it. Uh, but because I know I'm no more a natural leader now than I was before, it's a lot easier to clock, oh, they're, they're doing this because I have a beard now. That's interesting. Um, but, uh, that sort of uh, the awareness of that behavior and uh, how it's affected my own self-confidence is something that uh, I will never tire of talking about because I think it's important. I think it's vitally important. And you use the word queer. Is that your preference to use that word? rather than LGBTQ? Um, I really like the word queer. Um, I'm aware that it has a, a storied past that has not always been a positive word. Um, since about the 90s in academia, we've sort of used it to mean um, on the outside of a social group and looking into it. Um, and we, we use queer theory, mostly in LGBTQ senses or gender senses, to look at stuff like uh, gender and relationships uh, from the outside and see what we can see when it's not our norm. Uh, so I, I really like the word queer as a sort of catch-all. Uh, I am outside of the social norm or centered, and therefore I can see it differently. I know a lot of my friends refer to themselves as queer, so it's become more popular and it did have horrible connotations in the beginning, just like the word gay. It's just gay. I'm gay today. I am feeling gay. And right? I mean, they're beautiful words to describe how we're feeling. Um, anyway, you are such an advocate for everybody, I think. And um, I, you were talking about being on the outside, looking at the inside. Right now, I feel I'm on the outside looking at the inside with you. <laughs> because I think there's more and more, the movement has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and globalization and, and, right, and human rights and inclusive rights. Now, uh, talking about inclusion, I read a beautiful statement on your website called Inclusion Statement. And can you tell me how, because it's beautiful, it's so built, you're a great writer, by the way. I admire your writing skills. And can you tell me a little bit about the process that you went through coming up with that statement, because it's quite lovely. Oh, um, thank you so much. Uh, so the inclusion statement for me is, uh, it's about transparency and accountability. Um, because nobody can be all things to all people. But I think 
because I'm a sole practitioner um, and I don't have any sort of official oversight, uh, it was really important to me to have uh, a sort of moral code or guideline uh, to build in some oversight with the ombuds people who I have as third parties. Um, and just to make it really clear why, um, why inclusion is important to me for, uh, for the good of the art form, uh, as well as just being nice, because improv is better with more different people in the room. Um, and I feel like this has been a big year for theaters realizing they need to be more inclusive. And I've seen definitely some doing better than others in terms of uh, having a vision for why they're doing what they're doing and specifically how they're gonna get there. Uh, yeah. I noticed that you've also studied in the States and it was our mutual friend Jay Suko that even turned me on to you. Um, I think he's a mutual friend. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> oh, Jay, you're claiming too many people as your friends. Stop it. Uh, <laughs> so tell me about your studies in the States and how was that different than what you had learned in Canada? Oh, um, I've been really fortunate to teach and perform and study all over the world, which uh, has really informed my practice. Absolutely. Um, the States is a funny one. I've never lived there. So it was very much sort of, it felt like summer camp when I was going to study there. Um, but the culture around improv is definitely different in a few different ways. Um, there's, there's less of a tendency to play characters different than yourself. Um, for example, some theaters will say uh, female actors should only play female characters and male actors should only play male characters and sort of very degrees of that. I heard about that recently and I thought that was kind of crazy myself because I've been doing that since I began. But anyway, please go on. Um, yeah, and I also have the impression that there's a lot more crossover between improv and things like sketch writing uh, in the States than in other places, uh, possibly. Um, I think a lot more of the improv that I've seen there, although not exclusively, because it's a huge country, obviously, uh, tends to be sort of more premise-based comedy type stuff, like your your UCB and your IO style heraldy things, which uh, they they do happen globally, but I I wouldn't say it's the main thrust. Uh, sort of Johnstonian improv, particularly in Australia and the UK tends to be really big. So uh, short form games and narrative stuff uh, and things like that. Um, yeah, but I've been really lucky to, to do improv all over Europe and a little bit in Asia and Australia, New Zealand. Um, and it's so fun because there are differences between all of the countries, but so many commonalities as well. Um, and for me, having a similar skill set and super different cultural uh, constructs often results in really uh, juicy and surprising improv scenes.
Yeah. That's terrific. I, um, since I started, I think I've really leaned towards Spolin. I love Spolin work, the book, and but I always think of the UK as more Johnstonian. Um, and I work with a psychologist in a training program for other therapists who was a Johnstone. He took Keith classes with Keith himself. So um, let me see. Let me ask you about. Uh, because you have got a master's, you be, I think people who go through a lot of education become excellent writers. So you've written two books, and I mentioned um, Improvising Gender, and what about Play Like an Ally? How would you describe that book for those of us? And I'm sure everybody's going to run out and buy those books when they hear this, because we'll put it on our podcast link. So, Oh, gosh, I hope so. Um, profits from the book go to... Uh, a project I run called the Free London Improv Project, which sort of subsidizes free or pay what you can spots for people. Um, yeah, so it's either free classes or extra scholarship spots on classes, etc. Um, I like an ally is uh, a more sort of broad strokes book about inclusion. Um, so there's it's about half games and half um, little essays. And there's a lot of stuff about uh, training ourselves to not make assumptions, so to always open to new things, to work gently against uh, just implicit bias. There's stuff in there about sharing stage time, how to actively bring people on. There's a little bit about different ways to handle when scenes get a little bit uncomfortable uh, and a little bit about understanding privilege broadly and how that affects us uh, when we come into an improv class. I've got to get it. I'm sorry to say I don't have it yet, but I will today. And I love the fact that the proceeds go to help other people and other improvisers. That's so beautiful. What a beautiful soul you have. I mean, really. Uh, I just love it so much. Um, so uh, in your blog, I looked at some of your blogs and read some of your blogs. I didn't just look at them. I read them. And um, the consent to re receive criticism interested me because that was a discussion I was having the other day with some other folks. And um, I know you point out that, you know, you're going to be mo um, modulating the kind of notes you would give to somebody who's just starting as opposed to somebody who's more advanced. So can you tell me a little bit about your perspective about criticism and giving and receiving crit what we perceive as criticism? Um, yeah, I think it's an ongoing inquiry um, because every single person needs notes in a slightly different way or at a slightly different time. Uh, and I wouldn't say that I'm always perfect at finding the, the right note at exactly the right time, but I think over the years I've gotten better at it. Uh, and for me, it's about checking in with people and getting to know them a little bit. So I know what specifically they want or need. Um, there's a little bit of trial and error in just trying and seeing how things hit uh, and I think the having the words to be very specific and concise about what you mean is also really helpful. So, for example, with beginners, it's tempting to note them on everything they did wrong in a scene. But I try to just note on 
things I have recently explained or talked about so that they have the context to understand that note. Um, with more advanced people, uh, the why of the note becomes a little more important. So we sort of talk a little bit more as peers. Um, and I tend broadly to be a very gentle noter. I, I would much rather point out what went well and why and see if we can replicate it than talk about what didn't work and why. Um, because I think it's much easier to lean towards something that you want to do than it is to lean away from something that you don't want to do. Uh, and I also, I really love to encourage uh, an inquisitive mindset in playing. So I, I don't want there to be too many don'ts uh, unless sort of, unless needed for boundaries. But artistically, I don't want there to be too many don'ts, like don't ask questions or don't talk about the past or the future or don't do this, don't do that. Um, I think those should all be up for discussion because it's so tempting to think that you know what improv should look like and then make everyone else improvise like that. Or as for me, I, I'm really interested in what is the vocabulary and how are we using it? I totally agree with you. I remember when I started, there were these 10 rules or 10 suggestions of improv and that can bog you down because, oh, I'm making a mistake. They'll say, well, there's no mistakes. Oh, but I just asked a question. So I've just made a mistake. And uh, I think that my point of view is that, well, I've been a therapist for over 30 years now. So my point of view is most people are very fragile. No matter what we see on the outside, they're fragile. And even the the best of positive criticism, right in that word, is criticism. And so I think people are very, very sensitive. And to frame it, and I really, I, I just give positive notes for the most part. I mean, I don't, you know, when I was first teaching, I was a horrible teacher. Oh my God, I was terrible. Oh no, and then interrupting and side coaching like crazy. So it's evolved. And so I think it's really, really important to consider who we're talking to, like you said, the context and everything. Um, I want to go back in time because you said you were a terrible improviser in the beginning. And I was too. I was even on a team, but I, I really didn't like it. I, was having, I wasn't having fun. And Susan Messing over here in Chicago says, you know, if you're not having fun, you're the asshole. But um, uh, tell me a little bit about what was keeping you going because you were realizing, oh, I'm not that great. And, and, and I struggle with, I still struggle with, am I okay sometimes? So I want to hear about what kept you in the journey and how bad were you really, Stephen? Oh, <laughs> pretty bad. Um, so although I don't play very often anymore music, one thing that's really stuck with me from music school and the perspective now looking back on it is the people who ended up with careers in music were not the people who were winning all of the auditions at music school. They were the people playing second chair, showing up every day and who just really loved music. The people who were naturally quote unquote talented the vast majority of them slash us aren't in music anymore. <laughs> um, 
they're real estate agents and uh, scientists and lawyers and all of that. Um, so for me, seeing that the people who have successful careers are the people who loved it the most uh, is really kept me going uh, through noticing that I was just all right at improv, uh, but that I loved it. And for me, that means that that's what I should be doing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and following the passion and following the discovery because it's always, it's always different. That's the fun thing about improv. So that's wonderful. Um, I did want to ask you about a show I saw because I think I'd like to be in it. It's called Top Pet Model. Can you explain that show to me, please, Stephen? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so it's a semi-improvised well, mostly improvised show that's kind of a, a pastiche of Drag Race or uh, America's Next Top Model, uh, but with people's pets. Uh, so it's on Friday nights at 8 p.m. Uh, GMT, so kind of your afternoon, I suppose, in the States. Uh, every week they get uh, a challenge to do over the week, usually a photo, and then there's a live challenge in the... Uh, in the show and then there's voting and a final thing and somebody's eliminated. Um, so we've got so far just cats and dogs who knows about next season, other pets are eligible, but we get to see every week, just pictures of people's cats and dogs in fun uh, situations and or Photoshopped hilariously. And then we get to watch people try to encourage their pet to do something. Usually the pet doesn't do it, but all of the human companions are improvisers. So they, they make it really fun just to, to watch a cat sit there and glower or run away while they try to get them to do something. Um, yeah, and it's just delightful. I feel like getting to see people's cats and dogs is my favorite part of Zoomprov. So I decided to center a show around it. Well, um, I have a beautiful dog, a little Shetland sheepdog. She's not in my office right now, but she often comes in. Now, is this open? To, is this a, a class or is it open to anybody or what's the structure around it? Um, so we're halfway through the show right now, which means we're down to five contestants. Uh, there will be a winner crowned at the end. And then I hope we'll do another season after because it's been really, really fun. Um, Oh, it sounds grand. I love the sound of it. <laughs> I really do. Because my dog is so contrary most of the time. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think with challenges for pets, a lot of the delight is that the pet just isn't going to do it. Um, and if you have a perfectly trained dog who will, I don't know, lip sync or play soccer or something, in a way it's not as funny as your cat just staring at you as you try to get it to do that. Uh, it's a very sort of clowny, short for me type of improv vibe, I think, to just work with whatever the animal is giving you. I've definitely got to watch that and root for the contestants that are my favorites. That's so charming. I love that. It's so creative. And I can imagine it being your famous favorite Zoom time. How many hours a week are you teaching right now? Oh, I'm trying not to think too hard about that. Okay, all right. But we, uh, I'd say we're three classes a day. 
Three classes a day. Sometimes, yeah. That's lovely. Lovely. And you do workshops as well. You do drop-in workshops sometimes as well as, um, how long are the courses usually? Six or eight weeks? Yeah, I've got four, six, and eight-week ones as well as lots of one-offs. I'm doing a lot of co-teaching at the moment, um, sort of uh, as an effort to explore what improv is and how to model that as a teacher, because I think uh, having two teachers and finding the intersection of our interests and strengths to make a new class that neither of us would have made before feels very much like an improv scene to me. And it feels like uh, the style of improv that I want to be modeling, uh, which is harder to do just as one person in front of a room telling people how to improvise correctly. That's lovely. And the class I took had a woman, Erica, I want to say, I can't, I'm not sure that was the name or not. Um, but that was lovely. And we talked before about you working with Jonathan and uh, other folks like he. So I love that idea, you know, because then it, it shifts the power differential. You know, when anybody's in a class, the teacher or leader is always placed above. And, you know, in my own practice of psychotherapy, I tell people that don't think of me as above you or whatever because I have different knowledge than you. I have some knowledge that you don't have and you have a lot of knowledge I don't have. So we try to walk the journey together. Um, and there may be some things that I can bring to the table that you don't know about yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's a really nice thing to model in terms of inclusion because not my classes are about inclusion, but the, that ethic very much informs how I work. And I think uh, that having, I think particularly people who are really new to improv and or people who have been teaching for 30 years uh, and seeing us work together as equals, uh, it, it's a good thing to model because we can, I think particularly when we're new to improv or if we're a little bit insecure, it's so tempting to compare ourselves to others and to sort of create a little hierarchy for ourselves and to think, oh, this person is better than me at being X, Y, or Z, rather than thinking, well, what might happen if I got to work with so-and-so, uh, whether they're brand new or really famous? Because for me, that intersection is what's really interesting about improv. I have been reaching out to a lot of different people to do scenes. Sometimes we post them, sometimes we don't. But it's been really fun to get to know other people around the globe to play with and uh, explore differences and discover what we have in common. I think it's just beautiful. Now, mindfulness is a topic I like to talk about because improv is mindful in my point of view. And do you do you practice mindfulness? Do you see it as part of improv yourself? That's a tricky question because I suppose for me, Mindfulness has lots of different meanings depending on the context. Um, the thing that I like to coach most in improv that has to do with mindfulness is probably embodiment, uh, to make sure that we're uh, in our bodies and following their impulses rather than just intellectualizing. Because for me, 
I think emotion lives in the body. And if we're just thinking about the words and the ideas in a scene, we can miss out on quite a lot of depth. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think being in the present moment is the only way I can really feel and see what my partner is doing yeah. and attempt to be genuine and authentic. So it's not, it, I don't go for the funny anymore. Uh, I go for more authentic and genuine. And that works in therapy very well because people are really searching to find their genuine self. So um, you're just amazing. And are you working on any specific projects right now? Do you have anything that's coming up once we're released from our uh, dormitories? Of <laughs> oh gosh. Um, yes, I have lots of stuff in the pipeline. Uh, there are lots more classes. Uh, I've got uh, lots of co-taught things coming up that I'm really excited about. I'm not sure what. I'm, I'm sorry, what was that? Lots of what? Uh, co-taught things coming up. Uh, co-taught. Oh, teaching yeah. with another person. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, it's my silly accent. Um, probably. I love it. And yeah, so I'm also working on uh, a video about trans inclusion in theater and improv. Wow. Uh, should be out in probably three or four weeks, just as an additional resource for people. Uh, I'm most of the way through a book about how to improvise a play. Um, ooh, ooh, I like that. And there are some videos already on your site that people can look at as well now. But improvising plays, that's a lovely idea. Do you do musical improv at all? Do you like to sing? I was on a team for a few years. I'm not currently on one. Uh, it's not the easiest to adapt to online. I know some people are doing it, but uh, for me, I'm going to keep that in my pocket until I can do it in a real room again, I think. Right, right. The lag makes it very difficult. Yeah. It's kind of like mind the gap, mind the lag. <laughs> Great. Well, this has been awesome. I could talk to you every day. I mean, I really love your brain and your mind and where it goes. And uh, it's a beautiful mind. And uh, not like the movie, though. And uh, <laughs> and um, I hope at some point to return to London. I just love it so much. And I love the country, too, like Yorkshire and places up north, um, and especially Liverpool because I'm a Beatle freak. So that's that's the place I visited most in the UK. But uh, it's lovely to talk with you. And um, uh, do you have any words of encouragement for people who've been in there for a while and, and they just maybe are losing faith in themselves? What would you say to them? Um, find someone new to get delighted by. Find someone new to get delighted by. Yeah. yeah. That's a beautiful quote. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time, Stephen. It's been wonderful talking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a lovely time. Uh, and I hope you do make it to the UK too. Yes. The Fringe. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.